Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the future of higher education. I'm David Feingold, your host, and I'm delighted to be here today with John Sexton, the President Emeritus of New York University. John, great to be with you. It's great to be with you, David. John, I'd love it if you'd start out by telling folks a little bit about uh, your childhood growing up, what, what, what it was that you uh, imagined you might try to become and, and how you had sort of started your career. Well, I, I was blessed with two extraordinarily loving and most importantly, probably in terms of the long run, trusting parents. They believed in me. They, they never gave me a sense of limitation. And they encouraged me to be as expansive a version of me as, as was possible. The horizons were not very broad. Uh, I grew up in uh, Brooklyn at the beach. Uh, It was thankfully a a dead-end street. I didn't know the importance of that. It dead-ended at the beach wall, which was only about 100 steps from our two-family house, which my family owned, so we always rented upstairs until later. Uh, And uh, that dead-end street was important because uh, it created a natural playground because there was na- wasn't any through traffic. So touch football, stoop ball, slap ball, uh, a whole array of games that we created uh, in addition to hide and seek. Everything was possible. And I think that that was uh, in a way that I, I, I didn't realize until literally decades later, that was formative in the sense that uh, I quickly became the one that taught the others on the street the games. Uh, I was the one that taught uh, taught folks to ride a bike or to roller skate. Uh, uh, I was the one uh, in our Catholic church that taught the younger altar boys to say the mass in Latin and what to do as part of mass. So very early on, and I'm talking, you know, single digit years, uh, I I became a teacher in a way. Now comes the challenging part. Uh, uh, Blessed with this family, including a sister two years younger than me, who to this day is, uh, is, is my, my best living friend, I guess you would say, uh, my best friend, is my late wife, but my my sister Adrian, I call her Mary Adrian. She hated the Mary because everybody <laughs> in, a, in a Catholic family in the fifties and the forties was named Mary, but uh, she calls herself today Adrian. So Adrian and I have had now seventy six great years together. Our dad was uh, was an alcoholic, never an abusive alcoholic. I, I never saw him raise a hand to any of us or my mother. Uh, He was not, not 
jovial, but he was a noisy singing alcoholic. He died when I was 16. Uh, and the last four or five years of his life were hard because he had done a lot to destroy his body. And essentially, in a time when there wasn't health insurance, he was a lawyer by training and a politician in practice. He was the leader of the Jefferson Democratic Club in Brooklyn, which was Brooklyn's Tammany Hall. Uh, so he was a major figure, but not in the last five or 10 years of his life. So since he died when I was 16, I was old enough at the ages of seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, 10, to, 11, to be the one that would go out in search of him when he would disappear for days. But interestingly, I, I, I still saw him as my hero. So that introduced the other element of my life. When you say, what did I want to be? Uh, there was the teacher already, but there was the lawyer as well. And, and uh, I was always attracted uh, to, to, to that. Of course, those were the days of Perry Mason and uh, great lawyers, iconic lawyers. The final thing I'll say is that uh, in this loving family, my, my mother, who came from a family of six, three girls, she was the oldest, and then three boys. And her parents had never gone to high school, let alone college. For some reason in the 30s, the three girls went to college. The three boys never went to college. Uh, my mother stayed home when World War II started. Her two sisters and the three boys went off to the service. The two sisters ran mass units in in Europe, and the three boys went into the Navy. And, and that group of six siblings, who was very, very close, was really a nurturing family for me. My father's family all dies young, essentially, one or two exceptions. But the, my maternal family was very close and became important. And my uncles were heroes. My aunts were iconic. Uh, one moved to Michigan, right near, right in Ann Arbor, right near the University of Michigan. The other moved to San Antonio, which hadn't yet become San Antonio. And my mother got the job that a college graduated woman did, which was she was a secretary in my father's law office. They fell in love. He was nine or 10 years older than her. And she became the missus. He referred to her as the missus. <laughs> it was almost as if it was, you know, lady something or other. And, uh, tremendous love between the two of them. And in all the years, even after his death, I never heard her complain about him, even though she had to have saintly patience and love and really allowed all of us to see the best in him. And uh, as he dissipated, he was also a gambles, gambler. So as, as, he, as he dissipated whatever wealth we had, she went back, got her master's degree, and became an eighth grade teacher of typing at the local public school. And she died in 19, uh, 1980. And it was fortunate because she got to see me get to the Supreme Court as a law clerk, and she met the Chief Justice, and she met Lisa the love of my life. So, so when you started your career, you were a teacher in, in, in high school and then 
became a lawyer. Can you talk a little bit about that? It, you, you'd hinted in childhood that, that both were there for you. What led you first that route and then to make the transition? Well, as, as I went forward in elementary school and in, into high school, by the time I entered my sophomore year of high school, I was a year and a half younger than grade. Not because, I mean, I was very smart, but but not because I was smart. It was a whole set of circumstances there's no need for us to go into. But uh, uh, so I entered my sophomore year, uh, a year and a half ahead of grade, so younger, only 12. Right. And, and I'd done my freshman year in seven months. They accepted some of us in January. We had to be ready by September. Uh, so, uh, at that point, a great teacher named Charlie entered my life and we could come back to him, but just, he is the paradigmatic role model, the archetypal teacher. And he was an extraordinary man. The, the Jesuits thought that I should become a Jesuit and uh, <laughs> it was an honorable thing for a young Irish Catholic boy to do. And, uh, for various reasons, again, a whole different set of stories, not really relevant to higher education. Uh, uh, although I had women who were friends because Charlie had urged me to become a competitive debater. And, and I admired women because some of the very best debaters around right. were, were people like the great author, Mary Gordon, who was, uh, uh, you know, a, a debater at that time. So, so I, I, I didn't have the same, urge to objectify women that maybe I would have had if I were a year and a half older. I wasn't yet there. And and when I came to admire women, and of course I came from a family of strong women. So that was locked in early and I was headed towards being a Jesuit. And then in my senior year, I discovered romance (laughs) and that changed the world. So I told the Jesuits I wasn't heading off to the Jesuits and I hadn't applied to college. And there was a great young Jesuit at Fordham University. We were not allowed to apply to non-Catholic colleges. <laughs> I went I went to what I think to this day is the best education institution I've ever been associated with. It was a high school that doesn't exist anymore out in Brooklyn called Brooklyn Prep High School. And, and it had teachers like Charlie, like uh, Daniel Berrigan, who wasn't yet the Daniel Berrigan in the 60s. This was in the mid-50s. was a poet. And, and just great educators, the, the Jesuits at their best. And uh, I had applied to college, and the headmaster called the president of Fordham University, which was the best Catholic university in the country at the time. And the president put me in the charge of a man named Timothy Healy. Now, Timothy Healy was then a young Jesuit, but he was creating what we at Fordham called the heliocentric universe. (laughs) And and he recruited me to be part of a cohort that were going to become Rhodes Scholars. And uh, I got up there starting college at the age of 16. My birthday's in September. I I soon turned 17. And... uh, uh, Tim Healy had this agenda for me and my father died and it wasn't sudden, but it was catalytic. And I got on a subway and went out to Brooklyn to 
the all-girls parochial high school where my sister was a senior. And I just rang the doorbell to the convent. And I said, may I please see the principal? And she was courteous enough to see this 16 going on 17 year old boy. And I said, listen, I'm the national high school debate champion. And uh, I'd like to start a high school debating team here. And I promise you, if you let me do it, uh, I've I've got this business I created uh, when I was 12 or 13 and I put money in the bank and I can pay for the trips for us to go around to tournaments and so forth. And if you let me do it, the, 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 the girls will be better for it. We called them girls in those days. The girls will be better for it and uh, they'll win the national championship and they'll get scholarships to college because I didn't think it was that hard to do. I had done it. You know, I was, it was like, it was obviously because I respected them. Yes. And uh, so it was that at the age of 17, this woman said to me, well, we'll see if anyone's interested. And she called an assembly. My poor sister <laughs> walks into this assembly. It's her senior year. This is her school. And there is this brother she's put up with for <laughs> years. And he's the speaker of the assembly. And, and of course, they were all, I was only the fourth man in the building. There was the parish <laughs> There was the parish priest, and there were two janitors, Nikki and Patsy, who were in their 60s. And I'm their age and, you know, reasonably good looking. 200 young women showed up that afternoon. And by the time I told them what I was going to demand of them, and I was very demanding. Uh, so that was the beginning of my teaching career. And, and for 15 years, and it's going to sound like an exaggeration, but it really isn't, because every Thursday we would get in a van and drive off to tournaments and not come back until... Sunday night, Monday morning, I spent a hundred hours a week with those young women from three o'clock when they got out of school, usually till about 10 o'clock at night for the older ones. And, uh, those young women and the faith they and their families had in me because their parents essentially said, we believe in you. And they dominated high school debate for those 15 years. They won the national championship five times and, uh, Every girl got a scholarship to college and, and we didn't have tryouts. It wasn't that they were an elite cohort coming out of a school that where girls frequently would just think of, you know, they, they taught them typing and they would marry a civil servant. Uh, It was not a place where college going was exceptional, but it wasn't expected. And I just changed their horizons and I believed in them. It taught me the two most important things that happen in education, I believe this is true at any level, are number one, the expectations set by the teacher. And I believe they could do anything I had done. And, 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 the, and the second was that uh, you had to just really respect your students and throw yourself into it. And I did both of those things. And out of those women came tremendous achievement. And I'm very proud there. As I say, for 15 years, I did it at 100 hours a week, and it quickly became more than a debating team. Monday night, we did the great books. Tuesday night, we did the history of art and music. We made it a point to go for five or six weeks to the national parks uh, in the van. We'd go off for anywhere from five to six weeks. Uh, Every girl saw the Grand Canyon. So it it was uh, the teacher emerged. Now, meanwhile, and I'm sorry, I John, spoke before, so long, before but... you go on, 
there, can I just ask you about two things in that story that I, I just wanted to ask you to elaborate on? So, so one is you mentioned when you were 12 or 13, you had created a business that was going to underwrite this. Can you just say a little about what, what that was? Oh, so our house was at the end of this dead end street. And the peninsula, Rockaway Peninsula, is four blocks from the bay to the beach. And of course, I had a paper route uh, that covered the neighborhood yeah. for the Long Island Press. And my best friends and I would be playing on my stoop or in the street or whatever. And uh, I noticed when I was 12, I think, I noticed that uh, there was a woman from the 400 block, the Bay Block, who every day would come down with a baby carriage. And on, on the baby carriage, there was no baby. On the baby carriage, there would be two heavy wooden beach chairs and a heavy wooden umbrella. And she'd park that carriage at the beach wall for the day, and she'd set up her umbrella and chair in her favorite spot on the beach. And she she would have brought food down in the carriage, and she'd sit and watch the water and talk to her friends. There was a clutch. Mm-hmm. So one day in June, Dougie and I, Dougie, my best friend, and I were playing stoop ball, and uh, I said to her, I said, you know, uh, I see you doing this each day. If you want. I'll take the two chairs and the umbrella and I'll put them in my parents' garage and uh, I'll have them in your favorite spot every sunny day. And she said, well, how much would you want to be paid for that? And I gave it a little thought and I said, well, $10 a chair for the summer, which will define as 4th of July weekend to Labor Day weekend and $5 for the umbrella, $25 for the summer. So she said, deal. And then I went from the Bay to the ocean and two blocks in each direction, about five, you know, blocks. And, and I got that first summer, 144 chairs and 70 umbrellas. And I hired two 10 year olds, uh, Louie and Bobby. And I built a stretcher with a crate, you know, as its center. And you could pile maybe 20 chairs and I could carry 10 umbrellas at a time. And for those five blocks, we became the social arbiters of the beach. And, and then of course we began bringing down water and so forth. So I think that, uh, that, that first summer I paid the two of them 10 weeks, a hundred dollars a piece for the summer. Now to give you a frame of reference, uh, a first year, lawyer at the top law firm on wall street made 1200 for the year so these <laughs> kids were making a hundred dollars ten dollars a week uh tax-free i should say <laughs> and 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 then uh uh i cleared that first summer uh, close to four thousand dollars when, when the tips were included wow and 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 i did that right through my phd and yep. by the time I by the time I got to college, I had scholarships for college. But by the time I got to college, my frame of reference is the best house on our street was a sixty foot lot single family, the Mannheimer House, and it was on the market. And I could have paid cash for two Mannheimer houses as I entered college. Now all that money and, and the interesting thing, David, is that. My mother was struggling. I'm not proud of this at all. My mother and father never asked me for money. 
was put in my savings account. And I know that I disappointed her. She didn't want me to work with the high school debaters. She wanted me to get a Rhodes scholarship. Right. And I had stopped going to class and, 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 uh, uh, you know, and therefore Healy threw me out of the honors program. And my college grade point average was 2.1. I barely yeah. graduated for good reason. But in any case, uh, uh, my mother never asked for the money. And I had it then for the debaters. Now, in 63, as I'm graduating, ironically, I was on my way to class. It was the spring semester. And Healy stopped me and he said, you know, you've been a big disappointment to us. And I said, well, let me explain. He said, There's no explanation. You let us down. But he said, this was another important moment, an important intervention. The Vatican Council's happening. It's going to be important for Catholics to understand other religions. And we're starting a PhD program here and we'll give you a fellowship and pay you to go to school. Hmm. Now, at the time, I felt very honored because he was a hero to all of us. Later, when, like you, I came to run a college or university, I realized he had a program. He had no students he had funding for. <laughs> and, and he looked out at the quadrangle and said, you know, who's out there that probably hasn't made any plans? And he was right. I was preparing my girls for the nationals. I hadn't applied to graduate school or law school or anything. So I got my PhD in religion. And, and then uh, I started teaching because I wasn't being paid for the high school stuff. And all of my money had gone out to the tournaments. And, and then I started another business, which ended up being very big. It was one of the first tutoring businesses for standardized tests. And, and I, I started it working with my own girls because they would get scholarships. They'd win a debate tournament, but they wouldn't have a high enough SAT score to get into the Harvards or whatever. And, and, and so I started working with them. And then I went commercial with it because I figured I could support the debating team. And, and that became really big uh, uh, when in 1975, I finally went off to law school. My salary as chairman of the religion department at a small Catholic college in Brooklyn, which I, I had an offer uh, at the time to go to Yale. I had an offer at the time to go, go to a lot of good places. I chose what I call the Harvard of Brooklyn, St. Francis College. And, and, and uh, uh, that's how I supported myself. And I remember my salary in 1975 was $16,000 for the year. But the tutoring business netted for the debating team that year, 250000 So wow. again, and, and none of that, I, none of it did I keep for myself. My, it was all put on the debating team and helping out various and sundry people. All my friends did the teaching on a volunteer basis because they believed in what was going on with the high school program. Final point on this because yes. it'd be wrong. So in 1972, here I was, the chairman of the religion department at St. Francis, and uh, everything. I, I, I've got this unbelievable joy of working with these young women and seeing them succeed the way all of us who are, I call myself a possibilitarian, <laughs> we just derive joy from that. Um, and I, if you had said to me, what do you see in your future? I would have said, yeah. well, this, why would I change this? This, right. uh, I had a magnificent, uh, three-year-old son. I was a single parent. Uh, that's a whole different story. Uh, but, uh, a group of friends, we were down at Georgetown 
doing a summer camp for debaters we used to do together. It was a way for us friends who had debated against each other and knew each other to get together. And if you, you know, if you take, if you want one indicator of later life success, you'd go to the quarterfinals of the National High School Debate Tournament. You'd t- say, okay, g- g- give me those 16 kids, right? So, so uh, these are all high talent people. And one of them, Larry Tribe, had wasn't yet Larry Tribe the way he is today. He, he had just been tenured at Harvard Law School. He'd clerked at the Supreme Court. Another one, Bob Shrum, uh, had just run his first national campaign from from McGovern. Uh, uh, it was, uh, this was an extraordinary time. And they, but we were all down there coaching debate for two weeks just to be together. And they sat me down and they said, look, the time has come for you to go to law school. You've always wanted to go to law school. This is important what you're doing, but there's something. They did an intervention. Yeah. And they said, we'll back you. So I applied. My plan was I'll, I'll go to law school in New York. And I go to law school before three o'clock. Then I'll go over to St. Brendan's, which was this high school where the young women were. And I'll work with them as usual. And I can schedule my classes at law school Monday through Thursday. And uh, I won't take any more freshmen. And at the end of my three years of law school, all of the young women will have graduated and I can go off to whatever life is ahead. So uh, I applied to four schools in New York and Larry was writing me a letter of recommendation. He said, you got to apply to Harvard because I want to be able to say to Columbia and NYU that I recommended you to Harvard. So all five schools turned me down. I wasn't admitted anywhere. That was very useful later on when I became dean of NYU Law School. An <laughs> alumni would would complain to me, my kid didn't get in. I would say, I didn't get in. Why should you know, why should they think your kid? So so anyway, uh, uh, Larry was furious that Harvard had turned me down, even though I couldn't go there. Uh, and he went storming into the, the woman's name was Molly Garrity, the assistant dean for admission. He said, how could you turn down a guy I wrote four pages single spaced for? So she called me up in 1972. And she said, you're accepted on reconsideration. And I said, Dean Garrity, I I can't come. And I explained the story to her. I said, would you ever accept me for three years from now? Because I won't let you down. I'll come and I'll do well. and You'll be proud you admitted me. And she said, I now believe what Larry told me about you and your students and your commitment to them. Uh, you're uh, the first person accepted for the class <laughs> entering in September 1975. And uh, just to put the whole story behind us, I walked into Arthur Miller, who today is my colleague at NYU, the greatest person in the world in civil procedure. I walked into Arthur Miller's civil procedure class Today, we're co-authors. He became my mentor. Across the room was Lisa Goldberg, and uh, we were married two months later, and we were more in love. Every day since, really. She died 14 years ago, but uh, shes I still try to live every day of my life being worthy of representing her in the world. So that's the kind of serpentine path that brought me to... Uh, from here on in, it's very orthodox. <laughs> Before we stop this segment, I just wanted to ask you one thing. So your father's just passed away. You've just gone off as barely 17 years old to college. 
And yet, what, what was it that inspired you to go to this high school where your sister was and take on something that was unpaid and going to require so much effort? I mean, when you're dealing with starting college and that for the first time, that just seems an extraordinary thing to 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 take on on top of it. Uh, you know, I've reflected on that. I've talked to my sister about it. Uh, Lisa and I would talk about it. The short answer is I don't know. Uh, I, it, I, obviously, there was in me this strong impulse to teach. And, and here I would emphasize this man, Charlie, that I had mentioned earlier, had called us to teaching as a vocation. He, he, I remember him saying to us, he had a, somebody said about him that he had the body of Orson Welles, the voice of James Earl Jones, and the soul of St. Francis of Assisi. And he really was all of those things. And, and, and the Jesuits had picked 12 of us as we entered sophomore year of high school. And you've got to realize this is 1956, David. No one had ever used the words interdisciplinary or cross-disciplinary or whatever. They gave us, for one hour a day, five days a week, for three years of high school, from eight to nine in the morning, this man, for a course they called Charlie, because they didn't <laughs> know what else to call it. And he started with the, the cave paintings of Altamara and percussion music, and he came up through the centuries, right to the Korean War, and Jackson Pollock, and 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 he did simultaneously history, literature, art, and music. And, and uh, he said to us in that first year we were together, boys, consider teaching. Now he was not a Jesuit; he was a layman. He had studied uh, at Columbia in the English department for his PhD uh, under great scholars. Uh, and uh, boys, consider teaching. And then he would always put something in there that was, what, wait, what did he just say? He said, <laughs> it's the only profession where you get off 180 days a year. <laughs> and of course, he was teaching about high school teaching, right? right? <laughs> but this was his way always to put something, some, some lure out there. And then he always referred to the Jesuits as the collars because of the Roman collar. And he says, it's a far more worthy life than what the collars do. <laughs> so there it was. I don't know why I did it, but Charlie had called us. That, that's wonderful. John, this is a great start to the conversation. I'm, I'm really looking forward to continuing it. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, David. I appreciate it.